0: Just a recap so far in our series. Basically, foundations in the garden means that whenever Jesus, John, Paul, Peter, anybody in the New Testament talks about sex or human sexuality or anything related to relationships, they're almost always going to reference Genesis chapters two and three because that's where God established these realities for us as humanity. And they're going to they're going to go back to the foundation that God laid in the Garden of Eden. So that's our series, Foundations in the Garden. And we started by defining the word love because everything, every, every deviant behavior in our culture is justified with the concept of love which almost always is defined poorly. And so we took some time to define love by God's terms and we, we said love is will first and then emotion second. It's a willful choice to sacrifice yourself for others because you're confident that your needs are fully met in Christ Jesus. And so uh, when we have a relationship with the living God and he is meeting our deepest longings, we don't have to set up a functional savior in our spouse. We're free to actually love them and, and give of ourselves to them. And so we talked about marriage is then a covenant. It's not just a commitment. It's not simply a contract that can be broken. It's a covenant, which is a binding arrangement with God and man that is until death breaks that relationship, right? And so God's desire for permanence and the covenant arrangement, uh, we talked about God's loving kindness. It's a love that is gentle and is always reaching out to the object of its love. I just spent this week teaching Old Testament to some gap year students in Montana in in a program called Journey at Camp Bighorn. And we talked about this again and again. God is patient and Israel is stubborn and they're, they're what he would call stiff-necked, we'd say pig-headed, and he is, he's continually bringing them back to the place of humility. Sometimes he has to get harsh with them, sometimes it doesn't take much, but he's so relentless in his pursuit of his people. And I just love that. And marriage is the only relationship that blends all the kinds of love that we've talked about. Phileo love is the brotherly affection, and eros is the romantic love, and then the agape, which is the foundation of all of that, which is God's... Love for us. So tonight, what I want us to do is I want us to go to Genesis 24, and I want to look at Isaac and Rebecca, because even though this is a, a leading up to marriage situation contextually, I think there are some principles that apply both to people who are on the front end of marriage or who are already married, and I, and I think we can apply these pretty pretty evenly as we move through the text. So we'll actually read through the entire chapter of Genesis 24. I heard Dr. Robbie Zacharias say say this. He quoted this poem several times over the years. I've heard him. I've listened to everything he's ever put out. I love Robbie, and and I love it. But I can't if I could do it with an accent, it would be better, right? It's <laughs> something about if I could evangelize with an accent, I'd come come to Christ. And, and so, uh, but Robbie says, "Slippery ice, very thin. Pretty girl tumbles in. Saw a boy on the bank, gave a shriek. Then she sank. Boy on hand heard her shout." Jumped right in, pulled her out. Now she's his. Very nice, but she had to break the ice. Classic Robbie. classic Robbie. Proverbs eighteen twenty two would say it this way: He who finds a wife finds a good thing, and finds favor from the Lord. So, we we need to we need to see the guidelines for choosing the right person. And then once we're already married, you, you may you may even think, Man, I'm not sure I married the right person. Uh, Can I just say to you, in all loving kindness, it's too late. Um, If you're married to them, they are the right person. And and so this goes beyond choosing the right person to um, seeing your spouse as the right person and working on yourself to become the right person. So the criteria, uh, if you just think with me for a minute, we don't need to list this. But just think about the criteria that our culture feeds us about how you should choose the right mate. It's, It's almost all external. It starts with the physical, and it and it almost never goes far beyond that. And and all of it is I like and um, my preference and how does this person make me feel? And, and at the end of the day, when you boil it all down, it's really self centered. And, and the culture says that's the criteria you should look for. That's that's what you should decide uh, how to how to who to marry based on how they make you feel and if they elevate you and if they uh, get behind you to chase your dreams and follow your heart and all the other silly things that our culture says, on and on. And I, and I think we, as followers of Jesus, don't go to the Word often enough uh, to, to really see, what, what does the Word say about that, right? Most of us in the room, were married. There are a few of you unmarried. Um, you're probably all likely to be married. So listen up. Take notes tonight, especially you young folks, right? And jot this down. This is important stuff because everything that you're hearing in the world is contrary to God's Word on this topic. Uh, one of the voices I really respect in the church today is Matt Chandler at Village Church in Dallas, Fort Worth. And um, there was a video, he and his wife were offering counsel to the preteens and teens in their church. The question came up about dating. And what so what the question was, what's the bare minimum you would hope for in uh, a teenager who wants to date as they move towards dating relationships? And here was the you know, Matt Chandler's answer to that. He said, first... A sound relationship with Jesus. It's a non-negotiable, right? How does a person respond when they fall and screw up? Not just do they profess to be saved, but when they mess up, when they find themselves in sin, how do they respond? Do they run away from Jesus or do they run to Jesus? What? How, how sound, how solid is the relationship? He said next, are they really grounded and tied into solid gospel communities so, so much so that people including, and especially their pastors, have the place and have the right to speak into their life about these potential relationships or are they just on the periphery of the church right? so, so how, how's their relationship with Jesus, how's their relationship with the, with the body of Christ and lastly are they able to commit to where a relationship can and should ultimately lead I say this to my kids all the time, and I think Noah's getting frustrated at 16 because I've been saying it since he was two, is that when you get into a dating relationship, there are only two options. You either marry them or you break up with them. And I know from experience, because i dated a lot of girls in junior high, high school, and college, and all of them but one I broke up with. And I wasted a ton of resources in the process, time, energy, affection, lots of money. (laughs) Lots of, I squandered thousands of dollars. On girls that are not my wife. I wasted much of my heart's affection on other women. And so you only end up in one of two places, right? Are you able, do you have a good understanding of what you should be dating towards? Dating can never just be for its own sake because you either break up with the person or you marry them. So those are the three criteria. I really, I really like that and you can understand why I would counsel as a pastor that junior high kids probably shouldn't date and to be fair to junior high kids or some adults I know who probably shouldn't date um, but that's why we're doing this series right that's why we're delving into the word of God to, to have a good look at what Christ honored relationships are like especially in the front side of marriage moving towards marriage and then uh, striving to strengthen existing marriages because that always leads to healthy churches strong marriages strong families make a healthy church and that's a conviction of mine as a pastor so here, here we are in Genesis 4, and let's look at the text together. Uh, we'll go verse 1 to 9 here, first chunk. Abraham was old. Well, he was old when they had eyes, but he's older. He's all old, old. Abraham is old, well advanced in years, and the Lord has blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge over all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven. And the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. But that you will go to my country and to my kindred to take a wife for my son, Isaac. And the servant said to him, well, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me back to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? And Abraham said, see to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house... And from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you will take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you are free from this oath of mine, only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. (coughs) So let's just talk about the most awkward part of this right off the bat. The oath with the hand under the thigh. And, and basically what's in view here with this awkward oath is proximity to the reproductive system without getting wholly inappropriate. Because the promise of God to Abraham was to be the father of many nations, right? Right? And Isaac is the child of the promise through whom it is said by God, all nations of the earth will be blessed. Redemption is coming through this kid and his offspring, right? So this is a reproductive uh, reality here. And he's going to get a wife. Why would he be going to get a wife? Because Isaac's got to have kids. And they've got to have kids and, and, and multiplication, right? So there's a lot riding on this promise, this covenant promise. And there's a good bit of pressure to find a good wife for the sake of the covenant that's been made. So not only do I want you to go get a wife in this particular area and this particular people, I want you to swear to me, and, and we're going to make this really intimate, this is a big deal. It's a big deal to me as dad, it's a big deal to God as our Heavenly Father. Don't let Isaac marry a Canaanite. So here's our number one criteria, spiritual compatibility, spiritual compatibility. If you can't agree on that, you have no business entering into covenant marriage. Paul would say it this way in 2 Corinthians 6. He would say, do not be unequally yoked. Now, I want you in your mind, picture a great big uh, six, 700-pound ox yoked to a 200-pound donkey, a little burrow. And they're going to plow a field. And let will just give you the geometry of what's going to happen. It's going to be a big circle. Because the ox is going to do most of the work, and the donkey can't keep up, and they're just going to go in a big circle. Because they're unequally yoked, right? And so that's the image Scripture is painting for us. All through the Old Testament law, God says don't mix things that aren't, that aren't alike, which is a picture of holiness being set apart for God's express purposes from the rest of the world. And the biggest problem in Christian homes In America today is not interracial marriage. By the way, there's no such thing as interracial marriage. It's one race, the human race. Racism is a Darwinian myth. But the problem is not intercultural marriages, though they can present some unique challenges. The worst thing is when spiritually alive people marry spiritually dead people. That, That doesn't work. Because at the core of who you are, you can't share that essence of who you are as a person with someone who's not alive in Christ. You can't have agreement in the spirit with your spouse about the things that matter most. Uh, I tell people premarital counseling, it's, it's funny to watch the reaction. Jen and I, we, we fight, but we never fight about important stuff. It's always something ridiculously stupid and trivial. Right? Because we, we had wise counsel. And we took the time to sort through all the big issues before we went to the altar to say, I do. We, we made sure, based on wise counsel and leadership in our lives some authorities that we trusted, to work through all those issues before we got to the altar. And it has saved us some pretty substantial damage. Plenty of arguments for the last 17 years, but not about big things, right? So let's go on. Verse 10, and we'll go down to 14. So the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and he went to Mesopotamia, Mesopotamia, excuse me, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when the women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I'm standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city, they're coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink. And who says back to me, drink and I'll water your camels. Let her be the one that you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this, I will know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. So here's our second criteria. Move with God's direction. Move with God's direction. Notice what Eleazar does. He prays. But can I just say to you, that's like one of the surest ways to know whether or not you're moving with God's direction. If your heart's impetus is to pray, whether you're dating, or considering dating, or considering marriage, or married, it doesn't matter. That's one of the first things a regenerated heart, walking in the Spirit, wants to do, is to pray about this. I don't want to pray with my spouse. I want to pray about this This challenge that's presenting itself in our marriage or in my relationship. And so he prays that God would give him success and give him direction. Students, how often do you pray for your future spouse? Are you praying for that person now? You don't even have to know who they are. You just need to be praying for them. Not just praying that God would bring them quickly, right? But praying for them to be a person of godly character for their character development. If you wait too long to begin this, you could easily end up In a not great relationship, okay? Parents, how frequently are you praying for your children's future spouses? I I, I don't do it as often as I should. And when I start to, it just makes me nervous as a dad. Especially, I'm good with Noah and Ethan and then I get to Abigail. And I'm like, I don't even want to pray about it. I don't want to think about it. I just want to wring the neck of the young man that comes knocking on my door, right? So I have to break through that as a dad and pray for him to be a godly young man who loves Jesus. Right, praying for a right family fit as well. Listen, if you if you're not married, all the married people in the room will nod vigorously. You're not just marrying a person; you're marrying a family. You need to understand that, young folks. Right? You need to you need to know, (laughs) married adults. How often are you praying for your spouse, your family, for God's wisdom to work in and through you as you lead them and guide them? Man, many girls were coming out to the well at this time of day, as was the custom in the culture. They're showing obedience to their families. They're showing submission in context, culturally. But Eliezer asked to see beyond that. He wants to see beyond the cultural context to the character and the heart of the person. And in the South, where I grew up in the Bible Belt, the cultural context was going to church, right? And so that was a normal thing. You would encounter many very attractive, single young women as a young guy in the South at church. But I had to learn the hard way, not all church girls are good girls. So you've got to see beyond the cultural context to get to the character of the person. It would be a mistake to make that assumption Eliezer is wise enough to ask God to help him see beyond the everyday cultural norms to the character and the heart. And and so you you know where that's most readily shown? Under stress. When, When couples come to me for premarital counseling, I always say, Go on a short term mission trip together. Keep the nursery together. Wipe some baby bottoms together. You want to see what the other person's made of and what their character is like? Get under some stressful situations for the sake of the kingdom together and then observe who that person really is. Because we've said this all along this series dating, American style, is put your best foot forward all the time. Keep your game up, keep your, keep your game face on. And then you can, six months into the marriage, you can let all that down and go, okay, good. I can stop bathing again, right, guys? Um, That's not the reality. And we want to see the heart of the person that we're considering being married to. And so if you ask God for his best for you from the start, if you make prayer a priority, then you're not going to likely find yourself later asking God to bless the thing that you think you want in the moment. He's going to give you the deepest desires of your heart. He's going to give you the thing that's best for you. So, so begin to cultivate that attitude now. So let's, let's keep going here, 15 to 21. Before he had even finished speaking. I love that. Thank you, Lord, for your timing. Behold, Rebekah, who was born of Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother. She came out with her water jar on her shoulder. And, and the young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had ever known She went down to the spring, and she filled her jar and came back up. (coughs) Excuse me. The servant ran to meet her, and he said, Please, give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, mother." And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand, and she gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water. And she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. So here's our next criteria. Pursue godly character. Verse 16, first thing on the list, she was still a virgin. Now I know we've had the debate at Christmas about (coughs) the word for maiden can mean young lady, but just so you don't miss it, the Spirit writes here in the text, whom no man had known sexually. Okay? You need to be young people devoted to sexual purity, reserving the healthy expression of that for your God-given desire for your mate in the context of covenant, which we'll talk about in two weeks. And you need to be committed to pursuing that in your future or current spouse. Obviously, married people, we need to we need to strive for sexual purity within the covenant, right? There's a right expression and then there are deviant expressions. The truth is, not everybody gets to the altar with their purity intact. And the good news is that the grace of the cross covers over a multitude of sins. Now, that's not permission, but it is good news that we can find forgiveness and a fresh start in Jesus. And, and, and I know it's difficult to wait uh, if, you, if you're on the front side of marriage. And that's why Scripture says, Song of Songs, do not awaken love before it's time. Man, once you've, once you've been out driving and you haven't have your license yet, man, you just... There's just something about I just want to get out with that freedom. I want to be on the road. And I know it's not legal. I just wait till mom and dad are asleep. I'm going to just grab those keys and back out of the garage real quietly, right? And that's the reality of the human heart. Once you've awakened that part of you, once you've given yourself to someone else, it's difficult to suppress the desire for the sake of holiness. But don't be like the world that says that you should give yourself whatever you want. That's exactly the opposite of what Christ says when he says die to yourself, right? So that's the call. Beyond that, uh, look at the text here. uh, Beyond her purity, she's a hard worker. When uh, Eliezer meets up with her, she is faithfully carrying out her chores. And I don't know if you've ever carried water. Uh, One gallon is between 10 and 12 pounds, um, depending on which Google search you hit, right? And so a jar like this is a pretty substantial uh, piece of equipment with several gallons, and she's carrying that. And, and not only is she carrying her water back to her family, but she stops to give him water. Now she's going to water 10 camels. And a camel can put it down, right? They've just come off their journey, and she's going to water all 10 camels till they're satisfied. And then she's going to go refill the jar again to take home what she initially came to get. And, it, and you don't see a single complaint in the text. That's impressive. That's impressive. It speaks volumes of, about her character, her willingness to show hospitality, to do good, even if an extra bit of work is required on top of her normal, difficult labor to show hospitality to this perfect stranger or someone she doesn't even know. That is tremendous, right? And, and so uh, just as a guy who cares a lot about men's ministry in particular, especially young guys coming up, I'm going to say single guys, um, setting up chairs and tables uh, before events, coming early to set up things, Um, serving the ladies instead of sitting around doing your own thing, checking your devices when when there's stuff happening those things speak volumes Uh, if you don't know what the word chivalry means go home and google it tonight and then make it uh, your ambition to set a course to keep it from dying in the culture Right? learn chivalry be a person of godly character pursue that in your heart pursue that in your future spouse 22, the camels had finished drinking. The man took the gold ring, weighing half a shekel, two bracelets for her arms, weighing 10 gold shekels. And he said, please, tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? And she said to him, I'm the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. And she added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room for you to spend the night. And the man bowed his head and he worshiped the Lord. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master, Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness towards my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. And the young, young woman ran, and she told her mother's household all these things. Now, Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. You'll find out Laban's kind of a used car salesman. Uh, he ran out to the man to the spring. As soon as he saw, no we we'll miss this in the text, the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms. Like, what? Uh, he went. He heard the words of Rebecca, his sister. Thus the man spoke to me. And so he went to the man. And behold, he's standing there by the camels at the spring. He said, come in. Oh, blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? I prepared the house and the place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels, gave straw and fodder to the camels and there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. The food was set before him to eat, but he said, I can't eat yet. I'm not going to eat until I Say everything that I have to say, and so Laban says, "We'll speak on, right?" But let's just stop here and and look at this piece. Move towards parental blessing, young people. Move towards parental blessing from the perspective of others, especially parents. uh, There's a clarity that they can bring to your relationships that you may or may not have, even if the parents are not Christ followers. There's still life experience that can bring a new dimension to important decisions if you are willing to listen. See, God has established a family and he gave you, you you and your future spouse, the parents that you have. Whether for good or for ill. And these are authorities established by God and you you just don't have the right to buck their authority because it doesn't line up with what you want at any given moment. Parents. Remember that as your kids approach the dating and the marrying years, one of your primary jobs is to do what I call navigating the exchange. You could draw it on a whiteboard. There's a column here that you can label authority. There's a column next to it called influence. And right now, when my kids are little, birth to 10, it's all authority. I don't need to rationalize with my 2-year-old. They don't have the capacity to rationalize any they just need to obey me because I'm the authority. Now, as a child gets older, teens, preteens, teens, young adults, my authority <coughs> directly over them needs to come down and my influence in their life needs to come up until we hit the fulcrum place. If you've ever driven a stick shift and you've had to let out on the clutch and in on the gas and keep it steady in the same place on a hill, you'll know what I'm talking about. This is the place I'm at with Noah and Ethan soon and, and my my. Direct authority is going waning and my influence should be rising because what I want for them as young adults and adults is to seek me for wisdom because I don't have, I'm not, I'm not going to be the authority in their life telling them what they can and can't do at 18, 20, 25, but I want them to come to me for wisdom. I've got to navigate that exchange, right? And and, and it's never done perfectly. Please just let yourself off the hook right now. Never done perfectly. But you ultimately need to work yourself into a situation whereby you eventually have zero direct authority over your child, but you have the kind of relationship where they seek you out for wisdom. That's influence. And so don't wait uh, and and, and say, well, I'll figure it out when they get to their senior year of high school. uh, You've got to do some critical thinking about that now. Work hard to build trust with your kids so that they will want your input as young adults. Uh, Rebecca recognizes her parental authorities and so her first response to this is to make known to them all that's happened to seek their input and their blessing Uh, real quickly I dated a girl uh, right before I met and married Jen and her name was Leah and she was very attractive and she was a lot of fun and she was just like me she was the female version of me and I think had we gotten married one of us would have been dead Within the first year, we'd have taken out some big life insurance policies and one of us would sort have of mysteriously died mm-hmm. because we were too much alike, just like each other. And it was crazy. Uh, but I, 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 just, I was baffled by her and attracted to her. But here's the funny thing. More, more importantly than all of that, from the very beginning, her parents said to me, we love you. We think the world of you. But we don't think you're the right person for our daughter. And I, I, didn't, I didn't like that. My flesh didn't like that. But you know what? They were absolutely right, <laughs> and time has proved it. I didn't marry Leah, praise God, and she would say the same thing, right? And, and it was funny, is Leah and her husband Chris are some of our best friends. They live in Bend, Oregon, and, and uh, Jen and Leah are best friends. They love each other tremendously. It's great. We have that relationship. But they they knew they were right, and though it was hard to hear, mostly because I was in the flesh, and I was Twitter pated uh, to borrow from Disney. I'm glad that they expressed that. I'm glad that they said that. God can be sovereign over non-Christian parents or even nominally Christian parents just as easily as he can be over those who are fully submitted to Christ. So so young people, don't disregard your parental input. Verse 50, later on, her dad's going to say, this is from the Lord. That's exactly what you want to hear. That's what I hope to be able to say to my children someday when they come to me and say, I think I found the one and I've gotten to know that person. I want to marry this person. I'm going to say, I think that's from the Lord. I want to be able to say that as a dad. Except with Abby, I don't want to say it at all. (laughs) I know, I'll I'll come around, but not yet. So Eliezer now is going to recount for the family what's happened. Uh, So 34, this is a long chunk here. So let's go at it. He said, I'm Abraham's servant. The Lord's greatly blessed my master. He's become great. He's given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants, female servants, camels and donkeys, And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old. And to him, he's given all that he has. (coughs) My master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell. But you shall go to my father's house and to my clan to take a wife for my son. I said to my master, Perhaps the woman will follow me. But he said, The Lord before whom I have walked will send his angel with you and prosper your way. You shall take a wife for my son from... My clan and from my father's house, and then you will be free from my oath when you come uh, to my clan. And if they will not give her to you, you're free from my oath. I came today to the spring, and I said, O oh Lord, God of my master Abraham, if you're now prospering the way that I go, behold, I'm standing here by the spring. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water, to whom I say, Please give me some water to drink from your jar, and who says to me, Drink, and I'll draw for your camels also, let her be the woman. Whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. And before I was even finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebecca came out with her water jar on her shoulder. She went down to the spring and drew water, and I said to her, Please let me drink. She quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, Drink, and I'll give you your camels also. So I drank, and she gave the camels drink also. And then I asked her, Well, whose daughter are you? And she said, The daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, who milk a bore to him. So I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her arms, and I bowed my head, and I worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for a son. Now then, if you're going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me, that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. And then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you, bad or good. Behold Rebecca's before you, take her and go. Let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. I have to interject here as to Laban's response. He acknowledges that this is from the Lord, but then he says, we can't say good or bad, right? I'm not thrilled about my little girl going off with some man, but I see that God is in it, so I'm not going to stand in the way. And I I totally get that. Uh, 52, Uh, we'll we'll go all the way down to 67. When Abraham's servant heard the words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. The servant brought out the jewelry of silver and gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He gave also to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank. They spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, let the young woman remain with us a while, at least ten days. After that, she can go. But he said to them, Do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. They said, Well, let us call the young woman and ask her. So they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? She said, I will go. You kind of get the impression they're hoping she'll want to stay and hang out for a few days. She's like, No, let's go. So they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his men. And they blessed Rebekah, and they said to her, our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate them. And then Rebecca and her young woman, her young women arose, and they rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah, and he went his way. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahairoi, and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening, and he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel, and she said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, "He is my master. And so she took her veil and covered herself, and the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. And then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah his mother and took Rebekah, and she became his wife. And he loved her, so Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Here's the last one on our list move towards being the right person. That's whether you're pre-married or whether you're already married. We need to constantly be moving towards being the right person. Notice Isaac is reading God's word as they arrives meditating on the word. He didn't know when the wedding would happen or even if the search had been successful. He's not faking it for the sake of appearance. Now we get the phone call with a text, like, I'm 30 minutes out. It's like, okay, let's, let's get the house set up. Where's my Bible? It's going to be on the coffee table out. Like, it's, you know, None of that. This was his practice. This was his regular routine. He's busying himself with his responsibilities. He's taking time to be in the Word of God, commune with God. Both Isaac and Rebecca demonstrate a strong work ethic, submission to God ordained authorities, and a desire for purity and holiness. So when the whole thing went down, guess how long they dated? Zero. They dated zero days. They were ready. They were clearly led of God. They were under authority. They were blessed by their authorities. They didn't need a long, drawn out engagement. They just got married. Right? I'm not advocating that in today's culture. Fathers of children are like, uh, What are you saying, Pastor? Mm-hmm. No, I'm not. I'm just saying this is the reality. When everything lines up and it's clearly God's will, there's no need to have an 18 or 24 month engagement. Just make it a short one. As long as it takes to plan a wedding, get her done, get them out of the door. Uh, here's, Here's how we're going to end tonight. I want to give you a life parable. And I think this will be applicable for us. Whether we're married or whether we're newlyweds or whether we're hoping to be married someday. A rich man was going on a long journey and he hired a builder. He said, I'm going to be gone for many months. And I want you to build a house for me. And here are the blueprints and here are the exact specifications of what I want. He laid them all out. He went over them in detail. And then he said, I don't want you to use cheap materials at all. I I don't want you to substitute quality. I don't want you to cut any corners. Spare no expense. And when I return, I will pay you the best price for your work. Money is no object. Just be sure that you build it well. Please promise me that you will build it well. The rich man left for his trip. And in the process of building the house, the builder became selfish. And he began to dream about the price he could ask for the house and how to cut corners so as to uh, make his profit margin greater. And the more he thought about making more money on the price of the house, the more he substituted uh, his compromised quality in the building of the house. The house looked great on the outside, but it was poorly built. No one but the builder could have known the extent of the deception at the end of the build. After many months, the rich man came back from his journeys, and he returned He inspected the house. Then after he looked it over, he said to the builder, I have a surprise for you. Yes, I'm going to pay you for the house, whatever you ask, but my intention all along was for you to have the house. I give it to you and your family to live in. Jan Hedding, my mentor, former chaplain of the Green Bay Packers, he said it this way. First 10 years of your marriage, you are dealing with the spouse that, that their parents shaped them to be. After the first 10 years, you're dealing with the spouse that you have shaped them to be. You need to process that, and you need to think about it deeply. What kind of house are you building? Whether you're pre-married, whether you've been married for a decade or two or three, you are building a house and are you cutting corners? Are you committed to the quality of the bill? Because God's going to redeem it. And He wants it to be a quality foundation, a quality structure. So let's just ask Him again to meet with us, to take, uh, take this home with us as we leave this place and go back into our homes that would we'll be a people who are committed to quality in our marriages. Lord, uh, thank you for Isaac and Rebecca. Thank you for demonstration of godly character. Thank you for all the things we looked at tonight and just speak so much to us about the God that you are, how much you love us, and that you want best for us. You want good for us. You want us to enjoy the good and perfect gifts that you give us. Help us to trust you, Lord, and to know that as we wait upon you and we cultivate patience and we cultivate character in our hearts, that you're going you're to lead us into good places. You lead us by still waters, green pastures, Lord. We ask for your spirit to fill us, uh, to give us courage to wait upon you, to trust you for all good things, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus'